Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Professor James O'Higgins Norman holds the UNESCO Chair on Tackling Bullying in Schools and Cyberspace and is Director of DCU National Anti-Bullying Centre in Ireland. He completed undergraduate, postgraduate studies in psychology, sociology and education in Ireland and the UK. He's led several significant funded research projects on school bullying and cyberbullying and is currently working on studies about migration and bullying, workplace bullying and online safety. He was a member of the NCCA Subcommittee on Intercultural Education, is currently a member of the Government's Advisory Council for Online Safety, former chair of the World Anti-Bullying Forum, chair of UNESCO Scientific Committee on School Violence and Bullying, including Cyberbullying, editor of the Wiley Blackwell Handbook on Bullying 2021, and founding editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Bullying Prevention, Springer Publications. Welcome, James. How are you? Good, thank you. Nice to meet you, Cathy. You too. And so I'm sure you're aware it's Anti-Bullying Week, certainly in England, and uh, I'm desperate to know what your view is of it. I often think when these weeks come around and people are wearing different colored socks in school and trying to raise awareness of this issue, I often think, is that going to be really impactful? What's your view on that? Yeah, I think Anti-Bullying Week is, is, a, is a good thing in that it raises awareness in a pretty intense way for, for a week every year. But on its own, it isn't a solution to the problem. It needs to be part of an ongoing whole education approach to preventing and intervening in, in bullying situations. So as part of a wider program, an all-year-round program in every school, I think it's a great idea. But I think most educators would agree that it's not a good idea just to have an anti-bullying day or anti-bullying week and then think that's it, we have it done for the year. So your work is vast in this area, but I want to just tell us a little bit, if you could, about your UNESCO chair on tackling bullying in schools and cyberspace. What does that involve? And I also want to know about DCU's Anti-Bullying Centre. And the last thing I want to hear about is your new book, because I think people are always looking for some substantial kind of resource, certainly if they're leading a school. Sure. Okay. Well, the UNESCO Chair on Bullying and Cyberbullying was founded in DCU uh, in 2018. It arose out of an agreement between the United Nations and the university, where they recognized we had a certain expertise here in the university. And by establishing a UNESCO chair, we become kind of like intellectual partners for the UN on a particular topic. And in this case, it's, it's bullying. There are 800 UNESCO chairs around the world. And the focus of our UNESCO chair for the first four years was very much around issues related to migration and bullying and also work on the developing a school resource that would be used all across Ireland and beyond. And then also work on the definition of bullying, returning to that again and just seeing if we can maybe move that on a little bit as we've been using pretty much the same definition for the past 40 years or so. 
So that's been the three kind of pillars of the work of the UNESCO chair over the last four years. And the chair is located, as you said there, in DCU Anti-Bullying Centre, which is a research centre dedicated to research on all issues related to bullying, online safety, interpersonal relationships and conflict and aggression. And the centre has people here who have been working on, on these topics for over 25 years. And currently there are over 50 people working on projects in the centre. So we're, we're a university designated centre. We're also a national centre and we're also a global centre. And so we have different levels of involvement by different people on different projects that we, we, we will be working on. Is your book an output from that centre or your role as chair? It's, it's both and more. So the, the Wiley Blackwell Handbook on Bullying um, is edited by myself and Professor Peter Smith at Goldsmiths in London. And we both have been working in this field for a long time. And we had a, an awareness that there needed to be a new book that would act as a kind of a coming together of all of the research and all of the initiatives that have been developed over the last 20 years or so around tackling bullying and cyberbullying. So so a lot of what's in that book emerges out of research projects here in, in the centre and at the UNESCO chair, but also part of our global community of people working on this topic. So you mentioned definitions of bullying. We've come such a long way from someone, you know, punching another child in the corridors of school. Talk us through the newer, more modern definition of bullying that's much more appropriate. Well, I suppose the definition of bullying that has dominated in um, our field for maybe 40 years or so can be traced back to the work of Dan Olveus in Scandinavia in the 70s. And he was the first to really develop a definition of bullying that was that could be used by teachers, researchers, policymakers and everybody alike. And that definition focused on three things. It focused on negative acts, an imbalance of power and repetition. And and so that was kind of how we measured whether bullying was taking place or not over the last few decades. And it's been very useful and it serves us very well. However, increasingly in the last 20 years or so, there is an awareness that that definition doesn't capture the fullness of the experience of bullying. There is an individual level and there's a societal level. And um, as one author I know um, talks about that, Alvea's definition goes in deep into the individual and why they're involved in bullying or why they're targeted or why they're a bystander. But we also need to come out, zoom out and look at the societal aspect and how that influences the person who is bullying, the person who is bullied and how they interpret it. So, you know, you might look at an issue like homophobic bullying, for example. Why would a child in a school decide to pick on someone else because of their sexual orientation or their perceived sexual orientation? That is rooted in something in themselves, but also in the wider society and the messages and the structures that they have learned exist in wider society and influence them to decide that's the reason why I would target that particular child. And would you argue, is it true to say as a society, we are unkinder? Is it true to say we're not on the parenting front, teaching our children enough of our own values? You know, what's going wrong there? I know that's a big question, but I'll ask it. So I don't think we're more unkind and I don't think bullying has got worse, but our awareness of bullying and the impact of bullying has increased and has become more nuanced and is deeper, if you like. The data seems to pretty much show, you know, that there's a certain percentage of kids who will involve themselves in bullying, will observe it or will be the targets of bullying. And I I think society is actually getting kinder. I think that our tolerance for bullying has reduced to where it was maybe 100 years ago. There are cases 
of children being bullied in schools 100 years ago and people just accepted that as normal behavior. So I actually think that just doesn't happen really anymore. Certainly my experience working with schools here in Ireland and the UK and elsewhere is there's a great um, desire to, to remove bullying from schools, but it's an increasing challenge because we're increasingly more aware of the complexities of the bullying situation. And things like sexual bullying that may have been tolerated and certainly perpetuated years ago in some institutions, you know, that's zero tolerance now mm-hmm. to that. But other forms of bullying have emerged, haven't they? Identity-based exclusion, intra-ethnic bullying, food allergy bullying. That's something other people may not be aware of. So talk us through some of those sort of other areas. You've mentioned migration earlier. You were interested in that. What's happening to children coming into schools from different places and countries? This brings me back to my whole point earlier on that we need to look at the societal influence on bullying behavior and and so a newer definition of bullying will look more at we want to include those things that are there as identified but we'll also want to look at the more subjective harm that the target experiences and the influence of societal structures on on, on the bullying scenario so for example when when a, a family move from one country to another and maybe not because they wanted to maybe they're asylum seekers or they're refugees and their children end up going to a new school. They are outsiders in that scenario. And in society, we tend to like to develop boundaries around insiders and outsiders. And the outsiders can serve a purpose in society in that they allow us to define who we are. And so if somebody comes who's particularly different, looks, eats different food, you know, has a different language, then that can be uncomfortable for those who see themselves as the insiders And on the edge of that discomfort, they can act that out in terms of what we would call bullying behavior. So people who are migrants or the children of migrants are more vulnerable to being bullied than, say, children who have grown up and been born in a particular country. So so migration is an issue. We've mentioned sexual orientation already. Sex. We know sexism is another issue. The research would show that physical appearance is the number one cause of bullying behavior globally. And that's followed by race and skin color. And then that's followed by children from poorer families and neighborhoods, and then also children who are non-gender non-conforming. So it seems to be that difference, standing out in some way because of difference, sets people up to become targets of bullying behavior. And I think I read that on one of the sites related to your work that there are different rates according to different countries, which seem terribly interesting. I think I read Middle Eastern countries have high prevalence rates of bullying, followed by the US, then Europe and Caribbean countries. Is there sort of an available explanation for that? Yeah, again, it comes back to societal cultures and what's seen as normative and what, what, what's acceptable and what isn't. In, in our part of the world here, in, in the Ireland, the UK, Scandinavia, we have come on a particular journey in relation to bullying that maybe other countries haven't yet come as far on that journey. In some of the cultures, like for example, in the Middle East and whatever, or in Africa, it can be hard to find a word that actually equates with our word for bullying. You know, the, even the, the actually having a word for it. So awareness of bullying behavior and the damage that it can, can cause may be so absent from a culture that their levels of bullying can be higher than they would be in other parts of the world. So culture has a big influence on that. You know, again, 50 years ago in the UK and Ireland, for a parent to hit a child or for a teacher to hit a child was seen as normal and acceptable and good good parenting and good classroom management. Now that's totally unacceptable. But there are parts of the world today where hitting children is seen as good parenting or good teaching, and uh, they just haven't come as far on that journey as we have. 
Now, some of the most shocking things that I was reading in your work is really about how pervasive bullying is, but also how devastating it is in terms of impact on the person who's been victimized. And I don't think people perhaps understand the, the reach of bullying and how damaging it can be sort of longitudinally on children and young mm. people. I think it's important to say that most children who have a bullying encounter, particularly if it's not a very long one, will recover and do very well with good support from family and friends around them in a reasonably short period of time. But there can be a residual effect on them and also those who have more traumatic experiences of bullying long term in their life, they can have a lot to deal with. So, you know, if somebody is bullied, they will often find themselves feeling on the edge or pushed out from the group, alienated and isolated. And that can be a hard feeling to shake off as you grow up and become an adult in society. So the bullying that I experienced in school at 9, 10 years of age, 15, 16 years of age, that may result in me not really engaging or feeling connected with society later on in life and finding it hard to form interpersonal relationships, intimate relationships and so on. It can influence depression, it can influence self-esteem and ultimately for some children, unfortunately, it can result in suicidal thoughts and actions. So imagine, I love asking this question, imagine you're a school leader and mm. you're starting a fresh start. You've got a new job running mm. a secondary school and this was a key priority for you. Talk us through some of the big steps that you could take to really create the culture that is conducive to reducing, minimizing or really getting rid of bullying. Yeah, well, that's, that's a really good question. And I wish more school leaders asked themselves that question when they were appointed to their schools. Because often what they think about is, how can I get the grades up in maths and, and English, rather than how can I make sure this school is a safe school for, for all of the children here? So I think the very first thing I would do if I was a school leader is I would sit down with my staff, I would explain to them that they are valued, and I want them to feel safe in every way in school. And I want them to work with me in sharing that safety, emotional and physical safety, with the rest of the users of the school, the, the students. And then try and come up together collaboratively with initiatives that will make sure our school is a safe place for children who ultimately are the people why our schools exist. So as a leader, I must model a certain amount of collaboration, validation and care for my staff, for the parents, for the students that sets the foundations for a school climate where bullying isn't tolerated. Now, after that, we need to make sure there's a very clear anti-bullying policy in place and that we have procedures for implementing that policy. And we need to write that policy in conjunction with the whole school community. It needs to be co-commissioned, co-designed and co-written with parents and students, not just the committee of staff, you know, over lunchtime in the staff room writing it. It needs to be owned by everyone in the school and it needs to be easily accessible and everyone in the school needs to be continuously reminded that it's there and it takes place. So that would be my initial start on that journey with my school. And it's about consistent language. Is everybody, you know, we don't want a piecemeal approach. We need to have an approach that works. I'm going to give you a sort of a, a common scenario, which I'm sure will be very familiar to you. Perhaps sort of children in the first couple of years of secondary school, one of them starts bullying another child on WhatsApp, which is outside of school. So a lot of this bullying is happening on the online world. And there's always a great debate about whose job is it? You know, where does the responsibility lie in scenarios like that? And if a child uses dreadful language, racist language, homophobic language in that, where do we begin with this sort of 
agreement about whose job it is to speak to that child, but equally how to respond to that kind of behavior. So I suppose there's two levels here. There's bullying prevention and there's bullying intervention. And both of these need to to take place. And the case you've given me there is one that requires intervention, but it takes place in the context of prevention. And UNESCO published in 2020 what they call the whole education approach to bullying. I would have preferred if it was called a whole society approach, but they landed on this word whole education. And there are nine components to that whole education approach. And they include everything in the school that you would imagine, but also all the partners in the wider education system, in wider society and so on. So to answer the question, whose responsibility is it when that nasty text is sent on WhatsApp or wherever it might be, it's all of our responsibilities with wearing different hats and with different, I suppose, scopes of expertise. So the school may be the kind of the conduit where all this comes together. And it's right that the school takes a leadership role in this, because if something happens on the school bus or online or walking by the shops on the way home from school or to school, it impacts on that child's right to access and participate successfully in education. So therefore, we have an interest in that as educators. Now, does that mean that the school has to be the judge and jury and the private detective and everything else that's involved to sort this issue out? Not on their own, no. They need to pull in everyone else who who needs to be involved. But yes, it is very much something that the school should be involved in tackling from a preventative and an interventive uh, point of view. And presumably every incident like that that happens is an opportunity to reshape and shape and be inclusive within that anti-bullying policy and make sure it covers behaviour on WhatsApp. But equally, a lot of students never read ever the anti-bullying policy. They wouldn't have a clue if you stopped them in the corridor. So I always thought it might be a good idea that they have to have almost regular kind of refreshers online, little quiz to see if they actually understand their anti-bullying policy. Maybe what do you think about that? kind of idea yeah absolutely right i mean too many schools produce a policy they put it in a nice shelf or a frame or somewhere and the job is done you constantly have to keep revisiting that with the whole school community but remember what i said about it being co-commissioned and co-written with the students in the school if they're involved in actually producing that anti-bullying policy then they're going to have a greater sense of awareness and ownership so that's a good start then after that there's lots of things we can do to make sure it's always prominent in their mind Here at the uh, UNESCO chair in Dublin City University, we have developed an anti-bullying and online safety program called FUSE. And it kind of reflects the flipped classroom where we try and get the teacher to facilitate the parents and the students actually leading the way in terms of bullying prevention and intervention. So one of the things that we do as part of that program is we ask the students to to review their own school anti-bullying policy and find creative ways of communicating that to their peers around the school. So they make videos, they make posters, they do different things that they're able to do within their own resources. Another thing they do as part of that is the students need to call a parent's information evening and present to them the school's anti-bullying policy and lead on it. And we we find when schools call meetings about anti-bullying, a handful of parents turn up and the ones you want there often don't turn up. But actually, if their own kids are presenting and they're organizing the meeting, they will come to that meeting, you know. So there's lots of creative ways, like you're suggesting, Kathy, that we can engage children and students in co-owning the anti-bullying policy and procedures. 
And I've looked at that Fuse website. It's fantastic. So Thank it's you. something schools can get stuck into and have confidence in. It does provide mm. very strong kind of templates for how to go about. And they'd be part of a Fuse community. Presumably exactly. many, many schools are using that approach yeah, to good exactly. effect. Yeah, it's a whole movement. Wonderful. It's wonderful to hear about it. Now, something I'd like to ask about is behavior management. There is so much debate in education, even amongst teachers, about how to manage behavior. So, for example, I mentioned restorative approaches, which I know a little about from the world of prisons, Mm -hmm. where we used to restorative justice was quite a movement. It strikes me it's going to be ineffective if one member of staff has decided that's their way of dealing with things. Another member of staff sends them home for three days because of Mm -hmm. what they've written on WhatsApp. You know, what is optimal? What is evidence-based? What is ideal for a school environment in terms of the the punishment, if you like, for that kind of behavior? It's a really good question. And I think it's an important one that we think about because the term restorative is becoming quite frequent now in the narrative around bullying in schools. And you meet teachers who say, oh, I don't know, I take a restorative approach to this. And they have no training in the restorative approaches, but they understand the concept and they think, oh, we get everybody together and it'll all be okay. But actually the restorative approaches are based on a fundamental premise. And that is that everybody who's involved and who needs to be involved is treated equally and agrees to be involved. Now, in a bullying scenario, there's always a power differential between the person who's bullying and the person who's targeted. So before you would even begin a restorative approach, you would need to do a huge amount of work to get to the stage where that person who is targeted feels that they are so strong and so equal that that power difference is gone and they can now enter into a process as an equal with the person who, who bullied them. So I'm not saying that's not possible, but for that to be possible in a school setting, with the demands that are on the time of teachers and adults and everybody else involved in schools, I think that's quite challenging. I'm aware of one school in Ireland where the whole school invested in, the school management invested in training the whole school, all of the teachers, the SNAs, the caretakers, the secretaries, everybody was trained in restorative practice. And the whole school flipped itself to be organized around restorative approaches so that not just in terms of bullying, but Every single encounter between a member of staff with each other, with parents and with students was rooted in that restorative approach. And that school has seen amazing outcomes because of that. However, I'm also aware of lots of schools where a teacher's done a a half day course somewhere or has read up on it and comes in and says, oh, I'm doing a restorative approach. And actually, they make things worse. It has to be part of a much deeper approach, a much deeper commitment to uh, use that type of approach. And, and using it properly, otherwise more damage can be done. Absolutely. And something else that maybe we should introduce and talk about is the idea of the bystander to bullying. This is sort yeah. of a, a reasonably new concept, I think, to a lot of parents. But thinking about how can we motivate our own children to call out bullying rather than just being passive bystanders. And certainly there are so many incidents of young people filming incidents of bullying on putting it on TikTok, all sorts yeah. of things, dreadful behavior. But It's not easy either to be the bystander, is it? And to make those decisions as a child or a young person. So coming back to that societal piece and the influence of societal structures on how we approach bullying, society rewards people for being silent bystanders. We don't like to get involved. We don't like to take trouble on ourselves. Society doesn't often encourage people to, to stand up for other people. And so that trickles down, of course, into our schools. 
and uh, mind your own business, don't get involved can often be the, the underlying kind of philosophy that colors how we respond in these situations. And people who video situations and do nothing about them or repost those videos, they're not bystanders. They're actually supporters of the bully or the person who's bullying in that situation. Bystanders are often witnesses who just try and avoid getting involved and look on. But the bottom line is that some of the research coming out now shows that even some of those who are bystanders later in life will experience negative impact of being a bystander and the guilt of not interfering and of not standing up for the victim. Uh, of some of the research even shows that they can experience symptoms like that you would normally associate with post-traumatic stress. So when we talk about bullying, we often focus on the target and the bully, but we also equally need to do some work with those who are bystanders. And our education programs need to develop what we call self-efficacy so that students are well able to recognize, respond to, and if necessary, report bullying behavior, whether it's done to themselves or to others, or whether they're the person was carrying out the bullying behaviour. And does the FUSE programme of support for schools and sort of templates, does it provide guidance on the sort of bystander aspect? Yeah, actually, the FUSE programme is mostly focused on the bystander. It's, a, it's around increasing self-efficacy among all children in a school so that they can recognise bullying online and offline, respond to it rather than react to it, and then, if necessary, report it in a safe and effectual way. And our research shows that the children who go through our FUSE program, through what they learn, through the experience of taking ownership of the school policy, delivering parent meetings and all the different creative things that are in there, their belief in their own capacity to respond to bullying actually is is much better than it was before the program. A lot of the anti-bullying programs tend to focus now on the bystander because they're the silent majority who actually are quite powerful. How can schools audit the extent to which their experience, there, there are, you know, the prevalence of bullying in their own communities? So one of the things I like in, in, in some countries is they do school climate surveys. And as part of the school's climate survey, you will measure the, the prevalence of bullying. And, you know, the school climate is, is deeply linked to bullying prevalence. If your school climate improves, you'll find that bullying prevalence tends to go down. So one of the things that we would always argue for is that every school regularly does a school climate survey that will allow them them to measure how they're doing in this space. And initially, when people introduce anti-bullying programs in schools, there's a spike in prevalence. It goes higher because all of a sudden everyone's aware of what it is and they're recognizing it and they're reporting it. And then things settle down. But that's just the anti-bullying program itself. The wider school climate has to be a place where people feel safe feel happy, feel valued, feel connected and feel a sense of ownership. Uh, In UK and Ireland, many, many of our schools are coming out of a historical model of education that goes back to the public schools of rugby and Eton and other places where there was a very much a top-down model. And that undermined often a sense of ownership among the students. And we need to have our schools as democratic as possible, where students have a voice and they make a lot of decisions insofar as they can and they're age-appropriate and all that about their own educational process. And it's similar in the workplace where where workplaces are flatter and avoid hierarchy, there tends to be less bullying in in the workplace. Is it important to have a differentiated anti-bullying policy for different groups of students? So do we need a different policy on homophobic bullying, on racially motivated bullying? 
I don't think we need to have different policies on those things. I think one policy can mention these are the kind of things that people can be bullied about and you can incorporate it into it. But at the same time, we can't have a bland general anti-bullying policy that doesn't mention these things. I think one policy that mentions these different types of bullying and highlights issues of diversity and inclusion will suffice. But really moving from the policy into the implication of it, that's the big challenge, really. Now, we've had lots of schools, you know, mention over here talking about Andrew Tate, you know, misogynistic ideas becoming quite popular amongst sort of teenagers. We know that obviously with everyone's invited movement over here, we know that there's been a lot of sexual harassment and bullying in school environments. I think a lot of schools are struggling when they encounter this material to cultivate that climate that they know is important that you've described. But it's almost as if there's a tsunami coming the other direction that's very, very hard to navigate and to educate yourself about because this stuff is often hidden. It's in dark spaces on the Internet and it can be very demotivating, I think, for school staff. It can be hard to know where to start, really, can't it? Because when you think about it, in creating the internet, you could say we've created a parallel universe. So it's no more the, longer the situation where teachers and adults just have to mind their kids and help them grow and develop in this one world we live in. But the internet has created many worlds and they have access to it so quickly and so easily. So it can be hard to know where to start. But I think that the key to helping them navigate that whole world and all those messages that they're getting, be they sexist or homophobic or whatever they might be, it's creating digital literacy in young people as early as possible. Now, the gut reaction from most parents and adults, including myself, is that avoid giving children access to the internet for as long as possible to protect them from what's in it. But actually, the earlier you start and the more you can induct them in and support them and help them to be critical about what they find on the internet and where they go on the internet, then I think you're giving them life skills that will help them longer in life. So a message comes across the internet, they can say, well, do I have to agree with that? Or can I can I think about that and have my own opinion and, and so on? Yeah. And uh, children are generally very self-protective, you know, and they're interested mm-hmm. in not being made a fool of or not been taken advantage of by algorithms and things like that. So yes. that's a great point. Can I ask you specifically about work that you've done on, I think it's school religious education curriculums and the impact they've had on bullying? Yeah, so it's kind of an interesting area for us here in Ireland in that I suppose up until relatively recently, we had quite a homogenous population and, you know, pretty much 99% of the population was Christian. And over the last 20, 30 years, our population has become more diverse, more pluralist, more secular, and that has brought with it new challenges. So so what we've, we've done a bit of research where we found that, I think this is what you might be referring to, that children who identify as practicing our religion are now kind of the outliers in, in our schools and as such they have a difference and that makes them more prone to being bullied and that research we did here last year and the year before actually reflects other research that has been done similar research being done in other post-religious societies it's, it's a like 50 years ago it was only the village idiot who didn't go to church today it's only the village idiot who seems to go to church it's a total flip and, you know, therefore, if you're the person who stands out because of your religious practice, then you're more likely to be bullied uh, in that recent research we did. Now, there are lots of games and apps, actually, that can reduce bullying. And we've seen the GE Game Project at DCU, which is amazing, right? It's just sitting there waiting for schools to use it. Can you yes. tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, we've developed a number of online resources that schools and parents and young people can use here at the Antibodying Centre in GCU. And the GE game, that's actually only going to be formally launched next week. So it's, it is, you're able to access it, but it's actually, we haven't pushed it out yet. And the focus of that particular game is on gender as a source or as a reason for uh, bullying behaviour. And it was developed with partners in five or six European countries funded by the European Union. And it, it's an exciting um, resource that teachers will be able to use in, par- in school, parents will be able to use it at home, and kids will be able to use it on, the, on their own. Yeah, so we have a number of those resources. We're, we're working on a new app at the moment, and there are different things coming down the line. Well, we're going to be telling all of our schools about those games because they're just sitting there waiting to be used and they're highly evidence-based. Another environment where bullying might take place where we've seen very high-profile cases in the the arena of sport. Can you tell us a little bit about the B4 project and the work that you're doing to educate sports coaches about anti-bullying and fostering inclusion? Yeah, so sports is kind of an area that many people are interested in. People enjoy celebrating when their teams win. People like to be part of a winning team and uh, there's a level of competitiveness in it. And there are rules and regulations for how people can engage with each other on the sports field or in the squash court, wherever it might be. However, there is anecdotally quite a lot of evidence to show that there can be around sports a level of bullying behavior that's not recognized. And so in consultation with a number of sports organizations, we decided that the best place to start if you want to kind of change that culture is with coaches. Coaches tend to set the tone for a team for a club and so on. So we applied for funding from the European Union. We got it. I'm working with partners in about three or four other European countries over the next two years. We're going to assess the depth of this problem and then respond to that by developing a resource that can be used for training sports coaches long term in the future. Fantastic. Last couple of questions. You've mentioned your favorite resources. Obviously, the DCU unit is a key one for schools to tap into. You've got your book that's just come out a year ago, I think. But what other resources would be on your absolute gotta have list if you were a parent or, or running a school or a teacher? Well, I think educating ourselves, knowledge is power. So for adults, I would be looking at websites like webwise.ie which is a government-funded and EU-funded website that particularly tries to educate adults around internet and social media and challenges that young people face. So webwise.ie is really good. Spunout.ie is another good website that I would be pointing people to because it covers bullying issues, but also a lot of other issues that young people face. Our own website, tacklebullying.ie, is really good and we'll have resources up there as well. But you know what? The best thing that any adult can do who has responsibility for children is to familiarize themselves with the current apps and social media sites they're going to and the privacy and security settings in those. It can take a bit of time, but why not give that time considering how much of your child's day goes into using social media and apps? To me, it's a no-brainer. Familiarize yourselves with those, how they work, use them yourselves, And then you'll be better equipped to help um, young people and children that you care for. Yeah, so it's about leaning in and actually taking an interest in how these apps work. Yeah. Um, But equally, yeah, you know, thinking about, I think I like the idea of auditing the entire family's use of digital media. And children can help us set passwords and change passwords. And, you know, we can all have that dialogue. Last question, what exciting projects are you actually working on at the moment that maybe people don't know about that you'd like to mention? 
Well, the top of my list at the moment, myself and several other people are members of a government steering committee that's helping to produce the next action plan on bullying that hopefully will be launched after a year's work next month by the government. And I'm really excited about that because it's the first action plan in 10 years and it takes account of all the latest research and all the insights we've had over the last 10 years around bullying. So I'm really excited that in the next four weeks, we will have that new action plan and it will be available to support parents and teachers tackle bullying in, in schools. I'm also very excited about our, gosh, there's so much that's going on here, the FUSE program. I'm really excited about the next stage for that. We've finished the first four years of development and we're going into a new phase looking particularly at, I suppose the first four years was kind of a general anti-bullying program. The next four years, we look at specific groups and how effective the program is for them. So for example, non-white Irish, for example, we have some requests from other countries that want to use FUSE, so we'll certainly try and support those as well. But you know, anyone who's interested in what we're doing here at the DCU Anti-Bullying Centre, just go to our website, dcu.ie forward slash ABC, and you'll see all our projects there. Okay, well, listen, we're incredibly grateful for all the work that you do in this area. And I'm, for one, I'm looking forward to reading your book, you know, because it's such a synthesis of so much work that's going on in this area. So thank you so much. And thank you so much for all the websites you've mentioned. And we look forward to, um, in a few weeks, being able to access some of the great resources that you've mentioned. So Professor O'Higgins-Norman, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Cathy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site. <laughs>